I'm Fran Dunphy, and I coached in the Big Five for many, many years, and uh, you're listening to the True Philadelphia Podcast with Matt O'Donnell. Fran Dunphy is a Big Five basketball coaching legend, having led the Penn Quakers for 17 years and the Temple Owls for another 13. He led Penn to 10 regular season Ivy League championships, the Owls to three Atlantic 10 tournament championships, and three more regular season conference titles. Oh, and he's also won four Coach of the Year awards in his time at Temple. Bottom line, Fran Dunphy did a lot of winning. His overall college head coaching record is 580 and 325, a 64% winning percentage. Dunphy put a wrap on his career at the end of last season, opening the door for Aaron McKee to take over the head coaching duties on North Broad Street. But fully retired, Dunphy is not. He still teaches a business management class at Temple, and I met him in his office after one of his classes. Coaching legend Fran Dunphy, right now on the True Philadelphia Podcast. Here with Coach Fran Dunphy in his office at Temple University. The coach is not fully retired because you still teach a class here, and that keeps you semi-busy, I would imagine. It does, man. I want to clarify that a little bit in that I help teach a class with Professor Lynn Anderson in the uh, business school at, with honor students here at Temple. And we've been doing it for the last – this is our 13th year together – doing it had a great time with it kids are fantastic uh keeps you alive and young and it's really a lot of fun I'm, I'm, and uh, the reality is i'm learning much more than they're learning from me you and i met on the golf course we did yeah we had a good good uh, nine hole match you were you prevailed because of your game was better than mine that day but you uh, got me a couple times on the drive yeah uh, a few times maybe acts merely an accident <laughs> no i really enjoyed spending some time with you and that's how this happened uh you agreed to do a podcast i got a ton of things i'd like to talk to you about the first thing is i don't really want to talk too much about retirement because i mean you know that, that's sort of like hey everything's done everything's gone everything's over and it's not for you um what was it like though Stepping out, not being the coach at Temple, not needing to worry about the next recruitment class, not needing to worry about next year's schedule, not needing to worry about all the logistics that goes around coaching a Division One basketball team. What is it, what was it like that first day? Uh, well, different certainly, uh, but it, what we tried to do this whole year was just to make business as usual our motto, and I thought Aaron did a wonderful job. Aaron McKee was mm-hmm. now the coach at Temple and did a wonderful job of, of working with me on that to, to try to help me along. And and now it's uh, over and done with. I found a, a lot of good things to do to include the teaching piece. And and uh, we've had some some uh, some things that we've had to worry about as a family and health-wise, those kind of things, but all was going great. And uh, so we're, we're off and running with a new world that we're in and uh, – just really, to be honest, I'm sort of looking forward to the unknown. I don't know what's going to happen here, and but I'm looking forward to that. The change has been great, uh, and you never know what will happen to you. So it's, uh, but temporarily, I'm I'm doing great, and I'm sure I'll, in a couple more weeks, when practice starts officially, I'll be climbing the walls, and <laughs> hoping that wishing that I was, uh, you know, coaching my having a team to coach, you know, but. Life moves on. You'll be at that first game in the stands, right? I will, and I'm going to try to be as high up as I possibly can, up <laughs> in the second 
to your... If they could hide you somewhere. Yeah, that'd be great. That would be great. That's going to be weird, though. Yeah, different, but, you know, you're still rooting for a temple to do well and for the kids that you coached and recruited and uh, those guys. You want them to do well. You want them to win every game they play and and so all those things. But uh, I'll try to stay as far away as I possibly can. You started your coaching career in 1971, Army, assistant coach there. And I wanted to know what if you had any thoughts about what the game was like that day or that year and what it became in 2018. Sure. What was the biggest difference, you think? Well, the, uh, you know, life has changed. The game has changed. Technology has changed. Uh, every way we look at the game has changed. Simple, uh, a simple thing like film. You're you're watching film of a practice that you had uh, in, back in the early '70s. There was very little film of anything. Maybe you filmed the game. Maybe you had some some rough footage of the game, and you it was had like stick figures on the whiteboard, uh, it was, right? It was it was really different. But everything has changed so so much. And I I oftentimes use the example of I played with a guy at LaSalle when I was a student athlete there by the name of Kenny Durrett, who was one of the finest players in the history of the game, I really thought. And he uh, tore his leg up pretty good. He tore an ACL in his senior year, which was a year after uh, I got out. And the technology just wasn't there to repair ACLs like there is today. If he had done it today, then you basically you sit out a year, you get that year of eligibility back, and you continue to play. He would have been a 15-year pro, maybe an all all pro each and every year. That's how good a player he was. So medicine really has changed. Yeah, a lot, a lot of people don't bring that up. I guess yeah, when they technology think of everything has changed. I mean, yeah, just uh, uh, we're big into the coaches versus cancer world that we do today, and the 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 places that we now are is unbelievable as compared to we were. 30, 40, 50 years ago, which leads you to believe that in another 30 or 40 or 50 years, where we're going to be is just extraordinary, and hopefully we're going to be a, a more healthy society. Whenever I know you're not going to like this, but whenever, because you're modest, you're so modest, whenever I bring your name up, the first thing anyone says is such a great person, and, and that's testament to the way that you act, the way that you are, the who you are. And I want to know, let's say, when you became the coach at Malvern Prep uh, High School, uh, the preparatory school, did you sit down beforehand and, and say to yourself, you know, I'm going to do this a certain way. I'm going to set up a certain number of rules for myself, morals. I'm going to do this for the players. And that, Did you have this sort of thing all figured out already? I, I didn't, to be honest with you. As a matter of fact, Malvern Prep came to me in 1975 and said, Malvern needs a new head basketball coach. And my response was, that's great. I hope they get one. <laughs> and they said, no, we want you. I said, I really don't have any interest in it. I was playing a lot of golf at the time. Just, I had gotten out of the Army a few years before uh, working. I was bartending, so I had some cash in my pocket, and I was playing golf every day. I thought it was a pretty Life nice life. perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I acquiesced eventually, and, uh, and it was a great thing for me. It got me in a, on a path that uh, gave me an opportunity to be a decent human being and and help people do some things and but I no I had no idea what what all life was about at that point and or even what coaching was about I was kind of flying by the seat of my pants trying to learn as much as I could from as many coaches as I could and uh, and I hope I got better over the years but I hope I'm more concerned even more concerned today about the the people that I coached the people that were around me who I coached with. Uh, family, friends, all those things. I, I hope that I'm a good friend mm -hmm. is what I hope. 
I mentioned this to you on the golf course, and I, I, I said something to the effect that, you know, imagine all the lives that you've come across and you've touched and you've changed. And, you know, there's Kevin Bacon and what is it, the seven degrees? You, you've got to be much, you know, less than that. I mean, just imagine all the kids you've coached and where they've been, whether they're still in basketball or not. They're all over the place. They are, but I would like to reverse that thought if I could and say, yeah, have I touched a lot of people? I hope so, but I can't tell you the numbers of people who have touched me as I've gone along in my career, whether they be, again, the the people that you coached against, the people you coached with, played against, the young people that have taught you over the years. I, I use this example all the time. I coached a young man by the name of Khalif Wyatt here at Temple who was a absolute genius as an offensive player and his mind was incredibly strong and and intelligent with the game especially on the offensive end but it, as a freshman I I was pretty hard on him I, I said you, you know you got a lot of work to do here you got to really push yourself and and I busted on him pretty good and as a senior as he was coming off the bench late in the game four minute time out in the game I'm the uh, totally reversed. I'm saying, oh, Khalif, what do you want to do now? What's where do you want the ball? Who that you... makes it easy on the coach, right? It does. It does. But that's how much trust you you build within the team and with these young people that you're not giving them as, enough trust early. And that's the key. When do you give them that trust? When are you two going to be on that same page? It takes a lot of give and take. And he made a lot of mistakes. I made some mistakes. And but in the end, I've valued his person and the way he approached the game. Some people criticize young adults these days as being less motivated, needy, softer. I asked Jay Wright about this, your counterpart over at Villanova, and he actually had an interesting point. He thinks that the, the player nowadays is more motivated and more organized just because of all the noise that surrounds everything. What, what's your take on this? Are, are players softer? Is it different now than it was before when you started coaching? Well, it's, it's absolutely different. I don't think it's softer or tougher or anything else. I think it's in, each individual has brings to the table whatever they are going to bring. They're all different in their approach. But times are different. These kids are told how great they are right from the start. We do it, my generation did it to their children. My son, you know, I, I didn't treat him like my father treated me. My father seldom ever came to a game or to certainly never came to practices now but but things are different it's just and you you would adapt to the difference and you adapt to the change that's going on but i think these kids are so they're such in much better place than we were when i was a kid i didn't know half the stuff that these kids know now and they they work hard at it they want to be just as successful they 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 want to be uh, achieving things. They want to be uh, winners in everything that they do. So there's nothing wrong with where they are. It's just different. Mm-hmm. Give me this uh, estimation on a scale from zero to ten, zero being the ultimate player's coach, ten being the ultimate disciplinarian. Where do you think you fell? Well, early in my career, I was not the ultimate player's coach. I was the ultimate disciplinarian. And then you get older, you get smarter, you get wiser, and you say, you know what? I got to give much more empowerment. I got to empower my guys much more than I have. Got to give them the ownership that they deserve, and I got to listen to them. You know, in the in the beginning, you're insecure and you're you're thinking that you got to do everything. The reality is, as much as you can give the leadership and have it be coming from the group rather than you, sure, and have the attitude it's not about you, it's about the team. 
then I think you're better served. So, but uh, in the end, I hope I'm, I was more to the uh, seven, eight, or nine category. But in the beginning, I'm sure I was the one or two that, you know, I had to be the boss, and that's because sure. I was I was not intelligent enough to to figure it all out. Uh, that's interesting you mentioned that. So <laughs> I guess coaches. Not all the time, but sometimes they think being mean is going to make the players scared of them. It's going to be an us-versus-them situation, and the players will actually rise up against the coach mm-hmm. as if it's this huge adversary. And I think what you're saying is <coughs> once you become more uh, mature. mature yeah, with your coaching, you find other ways to motivate players. No question about it. And I think, again, you, you study leadership styles over the years, and you now see – the, the world has changed. You need to give empower. You need to empower your people, and you need to give ownership. And the sooner you can do that, the better off you are. And you got to listen more. It's not about you. You got to listen to what they have to say. That's the hardest thing I think to do out of anything, especially in an organizational structure. Yeah, it, especially it, when it you're on top too. It, it can be, but I, I think that's the key to. But and I think it's becoming much more prevalent, uh, despite some some things that go on out there today. There's some. There are some dictators that do a, a pretty good job of leading, but I don't think there's a lot of dictators left that are doing a pretty good job of leading that aren't at some point putting their arm around uh, an associate, a uh, in my, our case, the player. Okay, what do you think now? What's uh, I need to know your opinions on these kinds of things. I need to have a little bit more help here. So, You've been in that NCAA tournament. It's a great time. It's the biggest revenue generator for the NCAA out of anything, you know, football, all the other sports. Are you comfortable with the amount of money, the attention, and the, the coverage that it's attained at this point? Do you think that as an organization, the NCAA – I guess I'm allowing you to criticize NCAA. Maybe they need to reel it back even though it's such a huge money generator. Well, the NCAA, ironically enough, is us. The schools are the NCAA. So I think there's some discussion going on these days as well. There was just a, a, a thought from Tim Tebow that we should not be paying the players. Uh, but I think there's other ways that we can compensate the players. I, I think there is a – Beyond scholarships. Yeah, there, there, and there is already in place. The, these young people are getting what's called uh, cost of attendance checks each year. Some schools are giving more than another school might, so there's not a lot of – uh, equality in that, uh, and some programs across the board are giving X amount of dollars to each athlete, aside from sports, whatever the sport. For the is. expenses of going to college, which some Very people much so. forget about, it is still expensive even without tuition. It is, although if you are from a disadvantaged background, you get the opportunity to get a pretty sizable check, Pell Grant monies. That so there are some monies that come your way as a student athlete that people don't talk about very much. I think aside from that, though, that let's just say uh, Matt O'Donnell's a pretty good basketball player and his jersey's in the in the bookstore and a lot of people are buying that jersey. Shouldn't Matt O'Donnell get a little piece of that pie? I think there's ways that we can provide some extra funding to those people that are, let's face it, when I was coaching basketball at Penn or at Temple, wherever I was, they're not coming to watch me coach. They're coming to watch the kids Absolutely. play. Sure, yeah. So should they not be compensated for that? I, the problem is... Do you compensate the quarterback the same as the third string punter? You know, how do you where where does all that all come in? Do you do you give the uh, the the the, uh, the financially generating 
teams more money than you give to the one the, the non-revenue sports. So that there's a lot of inequality there, and yet th- these kids are all doing the same thing. They're working their butt off to be the best student they can be, and there's a lot of time and effort that these kids put into their academics. They're trying to be the best athlete they can be. Uh, how do you differentiate? How, how does that all come to be? And in our society today, there's ways around that we can maybe give them some extra monies and, and the the, the how they how they generate revenues outside of actually being on the court or on the field might be a way to do that. I want to talk about your time at Penn, and I know recruitment is always different. Uh, you're always up against everyone else trying to get the same players. At Penn, it was a, a, a situation where you had to make sure you get certain players of an academic quality while still being able to compete on the court. Uh, did you have any sort of special sauce that you were able to convince some players to, to come to Penn or, or maybe even if you want to bring Temple into the answer here. Well, the, the, the Penn recruiting was different than the Temple recruiting in that the Penn recruiting was non-scholarship. It was based on financial need, whatever you were going to get to, to go to school. There was a certain level of academic uh, attainment that you needed to have. Uh, but it but we were probably at the upper level of that world of the non-scholarship uh, academic first idea. Uh, so we got a lot of kids to come to, to Penn. But the history, the t- tradition of Penn athletics and the, the university, the palestra, <laughs> was phenomenal. You know, so we, got, we did fairly well. Uh, and then when I came to Temple, it was different in that now you're open to everything and everybody. And uh, so the competition was different. And we tried hard to get some really good players, and I think we did some really good things. Uh, we missed out on some for whatever the reason was. And, uh, but it, it's, recruiting was it's very much a part of what, it, what you do. And it was, ironically enough, the better the player, the better the teams were that I coached. And uh, <laughs> we all think that we're geniuses and that we got every answer. The reality is the, it's within the kids and how you set up your program and and uh, but it's a phenomenal job. It's a, it, it was inspiring for me to go to work every single day. In trying to get that deal-breaking moment to convince a player to join your team, was there something that kind of worked most of the time? Was it like a special relationship you might have forged between you and the player? I just think you have to be yourself, and you are selling your university. You're selling every opportunity that is within those schools. But you're being yourself. You can't be anybody different. So these kids, they see uh, somebody who's not genuine right away. But if you're giving them your the whole truth and nothing but the truth and being as honest as you possibly can, uh, then there's not much else you can do. You're hoping that you are swaying that young man to, to come. But there's others that are, that are going to tell them what they're going to tell them as well. And, uh, and you are who you are, but you, you have to represent yourself as best you possibly can. Now, when you're picking the players, obviously, I mean, just about every single one, super athlete, just really good basketball players. Did you have a certain X factor that you look for that made you tell told yourself that's going to be a, a special player we need to get? Them? Yeah, there there are some kids out there that you watch play and you can see, how, obviously, how fast they are, how they jump, how they shoot, how they pass. Uh, there's the intangibles that they bring to the table. How are they as a teammate? All of those things. And if you had the opportunity to select rather than to recruit, then you'd get somebody with all of those great qualities you thought. But 
there's a lot of give and take once they come into your program and you're working with them every single day and you can see the growth that these kids have. Is it something that you provided? You hope that you've given them a little bit of understanding of what it's like to be a good player, more importantly, a good human being. Uh, but there are some that are just they're they're going to go on the path that they are they're the that the plan is already out there, and uh, they've had good good parents and good social skills and all of those things that that are going to make them very successful in whatever it is they do. But but again, you're trying to get them to be the best they can be, and really what you want them to be is great teammates. That's really important to you, critical to any coach. Critical, I think. Yeah. To you know, you're watching the Philadelphia Eagles the other night, and you know Carson Wentz is above whatever else he is on that football field. He's a fabulous teammate, says all the right things, does everything the best way he possibly can, and he's a terrific player as well, obviously. But just the, the quality of the person, I think, just shines through in my mind. When you joined the Temple team, and Coach John Chaney stepped aside, did he tell you anything? Like aside, whisper something to you, or, or had like some sage words of advice for you. Well, I think maybe I shared with you when when you and I spoke a little bit. I was scared to death in you know making the move from Penn to Temple. It was a new a new world for me, uh, but I knew that I couldn't do it without his okay. So I went to him and we spoke for a couple hours. And as you can imagine, I didn't speak too long. <laughs> <laughs> but I listened, and I said, you know, I, I have interest in this job, but I could never take it without your blessing. And he said, yeah, you're one of the few people I'd like to see uh, succeed me. So he was very supportive and very giving and caring and genuine and generous to me and everything. And we talked a lot. And uh, But he gave me the, the the confidence that I could do okay if I came to Temple. And so, uh, but it was, it was uh, daunting, that task. I, I, he was one of the most entertaining coaches to watch because slowly but surely the tie got looser and looser and the, the shirt sleeves got rolled up and he looked like he was about ready to be all stressed out, but he always maintained composure to a certain extent most of the time during yeah. these games. Very much so, and he knew exactly what he wanted to get across, and some of it was probably uh, an act, but most <laughs> of it was uh, a, a man with no filter and uh, would say what was on his mind and a phenomenal human being, to be honest with you, uh, who I learned a lot from. He mentored me greatly, even the, like even in the 17 years that we coached against each other. We didn't win a lot of games, but I certainly lo- learned a lot about life and its pursuits and and how he was going to approach us in the coaching world as well. So try to get as much of that information as I possibly could when I, we were on the, basically on the same team. And uh, But a terrific, terrific man, and I think he helped unbelievable amounts of people. There's probably phenomenal stories out there that we'll never know of, of how he changed people's lives. You mentioned Aaron McKee. Uh, what a great story. Simon Gratz, high school player, uh, so a local guy, Temple, mm-hmm. played for the Sixers, long NBA career. Uh, did some assistant coaching with the Sixers and also under you over at Temple. Never has been a head coach. And I know maybe some alumni might have an issue with that. What would you say to calm anyone's nerves that Aaron McKee is ready to take over Temple? Yeah, I think he's more than ready. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, have any second thoughts about that at all. I think he's got a plan. I think he knows what he wants to do. He's been formulating that plan through Simon Gratz, through Bill Ellerby, through John Chaney and Temple, through those coaches that he worked with and for uh, at the NBA level. 
he was terrific. I, I, he didn't coach under me. He coached with me, and we had a lot of give and take each and every day. So I think he really understands what the world is of college athletics at this point. I think he's going to do a terrific job, and I agree with you. It's a great story. It's a great Philadelphia story. So very happy for him, and I'm hoping that he will have nothing but great success. I found a poll from 2012, and it's super interesting. Uh, maybe you heard about this. Maybe it's going to spark a memory from you. But let me just tell you what it said. It's a CBS Sports poll. Again, 2012. It asked college coaches, who is the most underrated coach in the country? Number one at 14% was Fran Dunphy at Temple at the time. Interesting. Remember that one? Was my mom in charge of that poll? Or? <laughs> well, and here's some additional information for you. The same poll asked who were the most overrated coaches. Number one was Roy Williams at 23%. I guess he's at North Carolina by then. And Jay Wright was number five p- previous to his run of championships. Yeah. Well, obviously those polls didn't mean a lot. So Jay's done an unbelievable job. I think what he has done at Villanova is really an extraordinary, extraordinary thing to be national champions twice in the last four years and had just his last six years have been almost ridiculous in how successful he's been. And I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. He found whatever it was that that he needed to find to make him a very special coach in a very special program. Uh, he's got it, and I think he deserves a phenomenal amount of credit. Roy Williams done pretty well as well. Yeah, sure, yeah, so there's sure. a lot of really good coaches out there. I would always say to my buddies in the coaching world, I would love to coach against somebody that didn't know what they were doing. I couldn't find them. <laughs> Jay Wright faced immense doubt early on with Villanova, and I'm sure that you've, you might have felt the same way at times when you took over with Temple. Mm-hmm. How do you get over that as a coach? Keep plugging away. You know, for us at Temple, uh, we got a young man by the name of Lavoie Allen to, to come to Temple, and he changed a lot of the culture that we had here just because he was – Probably as smart a college basketball player as I've ever seen, let alone coach. Uh, he v- made very, very few mistakes, and was and he could have cared less if he scored. He just wanted to get every rebound and be in the right spot defensively. I don't think he was out of position two times in four years defensively. <laughs> so you get that kind of help. And, and then we, we filled in with some really good players, some really solid, solid guys. So we got it going on when he, when he came. Uh, Jay found the right way of recruiting, uh, coaching, taking care of his guys the best way possible, and he's had a, a, an enormous run of success. So, But, you, you know, you, when you're younger and you're not exactly sure of what's going on, you're, you're, you're insecure. That's what we all sure. face. And, but uh, I don't think there's many insecurities in Jay Wright nor Roy Williams <laughs> at this anymore. point, despite the poll. No way. Does the net need to be higher? Do the courts need to be bigger? Well, it would be nice if it'd be, it, it would be nice if the courts were were bigger. I don't know about the, you know, you might want to raise the raise the rim a few inches, but just to to make it different if that's what you want to I mean, do. Players but, weren't this big back then and, and athletic. Yeah, I think it's more likely that we would play four on four basketball oh, rather than okay. widening the courts and all the gyms that are out there already. The cost of all that would be sure, just yeah. incredible. So. Uh, if there's less people playing, then, then maybe a four-on-four would would work. Uh, but it, that, that's the only change I would I would see happening. I think the change in the game we may we may go to a four-point shot rather than a three-point shot at this at point. At half court, close. 
pretty close. Really? Yeah, I think that's Stephen got, Curry would love that. He probably would. He pro game. He'd probably still shoot forty four percent from four point range. He's a phenomenal player and phenomenal shooter. And has, how about the accomplishment of that young man? Is that oh, incredible? Let's talk about a couple of guys on the Sixers. Do you think people worry too much about Ben Simmons' shot and Joel Embiid's health? Uh, well, I don't. I, I think you have to worry about Embiid's health because he's a big. He's a huge man. God, is he a big guy? <laughs> and there's a lot of things that could go wrong in that 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 big body. But uh, but hopefully he'll stay in relative health and can lead us to great heights and do I think that Ben Simmons uh, there are people are worried about it a little bit too. yeah a, l- a little bit but I do think in the interim he's working hard at trying to be the best shooter he can be there's a lot of really uh, a lot of talking heads out there that say he has to be better as a jump shooter in order to achieve the level of success he wants t- to achieve well he's listening to that he's not a, he's a he's a pretty smart guy he understands all of that and he knows it too he's a really an unbelievable basketball player. The things that he can do at that size are sure. incredible. And I think what he doesn't get a lot of credit for is his, he defends a lot of really good players Absolutely. as well. He's he's really talented. Can you learn an exceptional skill that late in the game? And you know, Ben Simmons is not you know, a veteran by any means, yeah. but once you get to the pro level, can you transform your game? How hard is that? You can. You can. I think th- these guys devote a lot of time and effort to that. And my guess is that Ben Simmons has spent up countless hours in the gym working on that jumper. Now, the, the litmus test really comes in when the games start. Mm-hmm. And in the NBA basketball world, too, there's two separate seasons. That regular season is one world, and in the pro- playoffs, that's a whole different world. Those guys, they are after each other. Every You, you can't. You can't take a bounce without somebody being right in your face. And, it's and a physical game. It really is. It's it's a hard, hard-fought game, and these guys are, while they make a, a nice living, they are also very prideful in trying to be the, the best that they can be. So I have something here. I have a syllabus from your class. You taught at that time with Lynn Anderson mm-hmm. here at Temple. This mm-hmm. is back in 2008. It's mm-hmm. HRM 3903, Management Theory and practice from mm-hmm. the locker room to the boardroom. Mm-hmm. And you apply what you've learned mm-hmm. running a basketball team, being a college basketball coach, and trying to share the lessons you've learned people in the business world. Sure. What parallels, strong parallels have you found? Well, I think there's so many different parallels in, in business and in sports. It's all very much very, very similar. Again, you need good teammates. You need to empower your people. Uh, all of those things. And one of the things I might say to a particular class is I have to lead down or manage down with my staff, the players. We've had upwards of 60 managers in our program over the years because kids want to be a part of a team. So I never say no or never said no. Uh, Now, that doesn't mean that all 60 people are going to work every single day. We're going to spot them in different ways. But I have to lead down. But I also have to manage up. I have to manage my relationship with the athletic director, the president, the board of trustees. I have to manage to my left with fans, students, alumni. i got to manage to my right with the media and all of those things that come in. I've got these tangents of uh, speaking engagements, of doing charity work, all of those things. When you're, you're given these voices as college basketball coaches, especially in a city like Philly, you're expected to do some things, and you've got to manage all of those things. And the other thing I would say to our students, our players or whatever, 
It would be nice if you left college and your life went on this upwardly mobile path that you never had any dips in your life. Well, get used to the fact that there's going to be some dips. That's just the way life is going to turn out for you. And how you manage that dip is going to be the success or failure that you either achieve or you are suffering with the the failures that are going to be with you too long. How do you, are you going to feel sorry for yourself or are you going to pick yourself up and say, you know, i got to change, i got to do different different work, got to find different ways to be better. And so that's the lesson, I think, always to be learned. But I, it does come with me telling them what I was like when I was 40 and showing them what I'm like when I'm 60, late 60s or 70. During your darkest moments, you always learn a heck of a lot about yourself. Maybe you don't learn... Some people say you learn who you are. I just think the lessons you learn in those moments are the most important. Because a lot of times you're trying to avoid them from happening again. No question about it. Somebody would ask me, uh, oftentimes I've been asked, what is the most difficult loss that you've ever had? Well, when I was coaching at Penn one year, we had a 27-point lead in the second half against our most uh, important rival at that time was Princeton Princeton, University. And there was no way we could lose the game. We're up 27, 15 minutes to go. Princeton didn't, is not a fast-breaking, run-at-all-cost kind of team. And yet we found a way to lose the game. They made every shot they took. We couldn't make a shot. We, we threw the ball away. We did everything foolishly. And, and now I'm in charge, and i got to go in the locker room to face 12 faces that are expecting me to say something profound. And I got nothing. I got nothing. So I sat down at their level with them, and I, I said, listen, if all of us make one better decision during the course of the game, we, we have a great victory today instead of sitting here after a defeat. And I'll start with me. I could have made a better defensive adjustment, substitution, uh, called a better play, out-of-bounds play, whatever it is. What could you have done? What could you have done? So we all owned that loss. And that particular team went on to win the next two games away from home, win the next two games away from home. Princeton lost one of those four uh, and lost one in, in each of the next two of the next four. We came to the last game at Princeton, and we're um, scared to death because if we lose, we got to go to the <laughs> sure, playoff. Yeah. Uh, but we found a way to win. We won by 25 points. Why? I'm not real sure. I'm, just as I wasn't real sure how we lost the game, but I wasn't real sure, but I knew that the quality of that group said that we're – we're going to be strong enough to overcome that devastating defeat. So when it happened the first night that we lost that game, I would have sold my soul to the devil for two more points. <laughs> but 20 years later, that was the most important game that I ever sure. coached because those kids came back from adversity, and they taught me a lot about who I was and who they were and, and to trust them a little bit more. And you did say something profound in the locker room. What did you, I say? you went in there and you, you get, got everyone to own yeah, the, the exa- loss. Well, I guess I did. I guess I hope I did. I hope I made some I sort love of a bit of fly on the wall. Yeah, and there was because I would ask other people, "What would you have done?" And I, you know, I had a class at Penn in those days, and the kids at Penn said, "Well, uh, the, I would have waited till everybody got out of the gym and ran them to death, or what?" I said, <laughs> "What good is that? They, they didn't. They didn't want to lose the game. It just happened that way." And I wasn't a very good leader that night. I could have changed my way of doing things that night and uh, and I didn't and, but but I learned a lot from that particular group that great leadership in the group and that's again if I if there was one mantra that I think I need to have as a best college basketball coach is get the leadership to come from the group as much as you possibly can it's more it is more profound the leadership 
When it comes to any sport and when it comes to coaching and playing it and management, do you think money balling is being used too much? Uh, you know, analytics. Yeah, I think the analytics is – I think in baseball, as I study it, and certainly you look at the Oakland A's, if they are the originator and the starter of it in baseball, how about how well they do with a payroll that is really not very big? But they found a way, I think. So – and if the reality is if you're a 220 hitter and the count is 2-0, and in my mind, take the next pitch. That's my way of analyzing. Uh, in basketball, if your if you're shooting percentage from three-point range is 13, then you shouldn't be looking to take too many three-point jump shots. At the same time, i got to coach you. And if you're wide open, i got to also tell you, do me a favor, shoot the ball. You're open, and I, I don't want you to be thinking about it. That's your job is to – and if you miss it, you miss it. We'll, we'll worry about the, the miss the next time down. But there's ways around uh, – the analytics are important, I think. But I don't think we can sell out to analytics. Is there a right time and a wrong time to think about one's legacy? Uh, I, I don't think there's any time to think about one's legacy. I think your legacy should be how you treat people every single day. And if you treat them well, then your legacy will take care of itself and don't worry about any of those things that people are going to say about you or think about you. If you are truly a good human being, then life's going to be really good for you. What was the better mascot, the Quaker or the Owl? Uh, they both had their own <laughs> their own ways of doing things. I was so proud to represent both of those institutions. And how about how cool Big Five basketball is in the city of Philadelphia and how much a part of the fabric it is. Yeah, it's, it's amazing, and it's, it's special to us. Yeah. No other city has anything that comes close. We have a lot of discussion over the years about whether or not, like what happened in 1955 in Philadelphia, there's no way it could be repeated in any other city in 2018 or 19 or 20. There's no way you can do this, but it, it survived. It was hard to do in... 1955, but those powers to be at the time did a phenomenal thing, and I, I take great pride in being one of those coaches that was around a long time and felt very good about the Big Five and what it meant. We need to keep it. We have to keep it. Did a lot for the legacy. No question about it. Fran Dunphy on the True Philadelphia Podcast. Thanks so much, Coach. Yeah, happy to be with you, man. Thanks to Fran Dunphy for his time, his insight, and his offer to me to audit his class at Temple, which I plan to take up. Subscribe to the True Philadelphia podcast on Apple Podcasts. We have so many more great interviews featuring the people who are moving and shaking and advancing the Philadelphia region. I'm Matt O'Donnell. Stay true, Philadelphia.